from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Jerry Peterson. I'm an elder currently serving on the session here at First Pres. Please join me in our call to worship. People will come from the east. We have come from the east. People will come from the west. We have come from the west. People will come from the north. We have come from the north. People will come from the south. We have come from the south. People will come from east and west, north and south, to feast in the kingdom of God. We have come to worship our God. Let us open our hearts and our minds to the word of God to each one of us this morning from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Amen. In the New Testament from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 12. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Th those who eat must not uh, despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Wh who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. 
let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or, or you? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each of us will be accountable to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We move forward in this sermon series, a series dedicated to introducing our long-range strategic plan called On the Way to 175. And for this morning, we are centering in on our third value, the value of authentic diversity. These sermons will fall in line under the various values that have been lifted up in this long-range plan as we introduce not just them and the mission statement, but also our long-range strategic goals. Last week, I talked about how our first two values, spiritual home and enduring commitment, influence and shape how we receive the invitation to participate in this particular community, how these values shape our understanding of what it means to participate to deepen that participation in more intentional ways. This week, we're being asked to consider uh, what it means to be a people that values authentic diversity, to consider what it means to build relationships that honor one another as children of God. As we get into it uh, this morning, I thought I'd start by identifying three prevailing ideas three prevailing cultural norms that are often attached, not necessarily together, but attached to this notion of diversity, how we understand the meaning of diversity and how it functions in our society today. And so before we get into the way we want to think about it within our long-range strategic plan, we want to ask the question, how do people in this secular society, in our time and in our age, think about diversity? When they think of that word, what images, what definitions, what practices come to mind? And so I want to lift up three ways, three approaches that diversity is understood today. First, there's a cultural approach to diversity that believes that this idea, that this notion of diversity is a value not to be ignored or snubbed within the bounds of a liberal, free, and democratic society. In fact, 
Diversity is an essential part of it. Making up for generations upon generations of white privilege, the quest for diversity in this approach is systematized with quotas and standards and, and mandates and social expectations for diversifying classrooms and, and, and corporate boardrooms and, and halls of government and, and even neighborhoods so that these entities, these groups and gatherings may be more representative of the populace. Writing for the left of center London paper, The New Statesman, contributing editor uh, Laura Penny says this, here's what people say whenever you make a case for quotas. It should always be getting the best person for the job. Aren't you worried about people being promoted just because of who they are, not what they can do? Isn't that discrimination? Isn't it unfair? The answer, she writes, is, of course it's unfair. It's extremely unfair. I'm categorically against people being parachuted into positions of power and influence just because of their gender or the color of their skin. And that's precisely why, she writes, we need diversity hires. That's precisely why we need quotas. In this society, plenty of people are promoted just because of their gender and race. Almost all of those people are white men. This is one approach to diversity, isn't it? One way of understanding how it should operate within our society, that it must be systematized, mandated through legal expectations and ethical standards that seek to repair the damage caused by white privilege. That is one approach to diversity today. A second approach is way more neutral than that. It's really quite pro pragmatic, and it promotes what I would call the economic advantages of diversity. You see, it turns out that diversity is good for business. Diversity is good for business. This approach, the second approach, its, it's chief end is the bottom line. It, it really has little concern as to the questions of justice, nor is it concerned with what is politically correct. See, from an internal perspective, building a diverse workforce helps expand lanes of understanding. It helps expand creativity. It helps expand relationships with people who are diverse, with customers and clients they're trying to serve. See, diverse people bring diverse ideas. Diverse people bring diverse relationships. They bring diverse strategies, all in service to hitting the number, to making the quarterly projections, to make sure that the bottom line has been realized. International consulting conglomerate McKinsey and Company has actually studied this. They have data on this. Their research shows that gender-diverse companies outperform their competition by 15%. Racially, ethnic, diverse companies outperform their competition by 35%. Diversity is good for business. That's the second approach. There is a third perspective that I'll lift up when it comes to understanding the meaning and function of diversity, and it comes from a more conservative mindset. 
For some, liberalism's pursuit of diversity, especially within corporate and educational contexts, has, has left a lot to be desired. One of the voices from that particular cohort is, is Bruce Thornton. He's a research fellow with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He calls it faux diversity. He calls it faux diversity. And he's quick to criticize diversity quotas that are only interested in race and in gender and ignore the nuance and plurality of socioeconomic, ethnic, political, and certain religious affiliations. There's some data that bears witness to this notion of, of faux diversity. For example, within the 200 most selective universities in the United States, the 200 most competitive universities in our country, only 5% of the student body comes from the bottom 25% of household income. Only 5% of these students come from the poorest households in our nation. He has a lot to say about higher education and diversity. I've elevated a, a longer quote here. The contradiction, he says, in most universities' idea of diversity is that it functions in terms of stereotypical, simplistic, race-based categories that ignore all other ways in which people are diverse, ways that could actually enrich the university. Given that faculties are overwhelmingly liberal, for example, a concern with genuine diversity surely would include the recruitment of conservative students and faculties. But the admissions officers at elite colleges and universities are not worried about having too few Christians or Republicans. I do think that's kind of funny. Indeed, he says, a surefire way for a candidate to be blacklisted in the academy is to profess a belief associated with conservatism or Christianity, end quote. This view suggests that these institutions and entities care more about the rhetoric of diversity than actualizing diversity beyond the politically correct mores to which they are deeply committed. Now, I believe that it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that when church folk hear their preacher use the word diversity, that their minds start spinning. Because they hear it most likely, we hear it most likely, in terms of these three approaches that I have just named, deep down inside, we've affiliated with at least one of them, maybe two, maybe a combination of all three, but our understanding of diversity principally is formed and shaped by these three approaches, by the mainstream, by the pragmatic, or by the conservative critique. It's at this point that we should name the quest here for understanding a theology of diversity, not from these perspectives, but from a biblically inspired one. What does our story have to say about diversity? Because for so many of us, our notion, our concept of our understanding and the functionality of this concept has been profoundly shaped, not by the scriptures, but by secular society. You see, from a theological point of view, the telos or the point or the end of diversity is not mainstream political correctness, nor is it an amoral pragmatism that only cares about the bottom line, nor is the end throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, we shouldn't give up on diversity just because the mainstream is prone to hypocrisy. 
and its exclusion of those who don't share their agenda. So where does the Christian turn in trying to form and develop a theology of diversity that sort of rises above what the secular has said? I think we do well to turn to our origin stories. That's where I think we should go. I think we should turn to our origin stories, like the stories that we find in the book of Genesis. In particular, I'm thinking about the Tower of Babel. Have you heard this story before? Genesis chapter 11. It's one of those stories that I like to say is absolutely true, and it may have actually happened. Right? It is true because it tells us something about who God is and something about who we are in relationship to this God. In this particular story, I think we begin to see an explanation as to the roots of human diversity and why it matters, and why it matters to God. Can I read it? Come on, shake your heads, please. Thank you. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as they migrated from the east, they, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there. So they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The first thing we take note of is this, that diversity is God's idea. It's God's idea. God comes up with it. Diverse language, diverse people groups that, are, that, that scatter across the face of the earth. That's God's idea. We say, but, but Tony, you know, that, it's hardly a way to, to start something positive in reaction to something that is so negative, right? It's, it's a reaction that God has to, to what's taking place in, in Babel. And, and so the first thing I want you to keep in mind is that diversity is God's idea. And the second and third point of this story that I want to lift up is, is really there, there, there are two sides of the same coin. It's God's idea, first and foremost, to introduce diversity as a judgment. As a judgment... And then, as an opportunity to scatter and spread the good news of God. We'll take each one of these in turn. First, as a judgment. God judges those at Babel because of their idolatry. Because of their idolatry. What are they trying to do? They're trying to build a tower that reaches the heavens, and they are trying to make a name for themselves. This is just a continuation of the sin story that really starts in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent to eat from the, uh, the, the, the tree, eat the fruit from the tree of the, in the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is their sin? It's idolatry. They, they want to be like God. They want to be above God. And this is the same thing. The people of Babel, they want to build a tower. They want to put themselves above others, even put themselves into heaven to be equal 
or maybe even above God. We can extrapolate here, right? Because human beings are prone to idolize themselves, their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their national identity, their ethnicity, their their sexual orientation, and, and, and construct it almost like a metaphorical tower that is over everybody else over other races and genders and socioeconomic strata and national identity and ethnicity and sexual orientation, over everything. In the judgment of Babel, God is essentially saying that one race, one language, one people group will never be above others, will never have a name that towers over others, will never have a name above God. Paul says it in Romans 14. Do you remember what he says? That there's only one name that is above every name. It's God's name. Not only is diversity God's idea to judge humanity's idolatry, but it is also God's idea to spread God's mission. What is God's mission? God's mission is, I believe, in the most simplest form, to reconcile the world to God's self. That we would be in right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with ourselves. The prophet Isaiah paints a picture for us of what this might look like, a reconciled people. Isaiah says it's like a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. God's mission is to gather all people to God's self. That's God's mission. Both the insider and the outsider, the the, the sinner and the saint, both the outcast and the one who already is at home. In other words, the prodigal son and the older brother reconciled to God and to one another. You go back to Babel. Diversity is not only God's idea to judge humanity's idolatry, but it is also the way by which God will scatter the good news in the world. And the redemption of this, uh, this event that takes place in Babel and the scattering of people comes into clear focus, doesn't it? When we read the Pentecost story, Acts chapter 2, from the writer Luke, all of a sudden this scattered people start speaking in one language. Wait, no, that's not how it goes, right? No, all of a sudden the people start speaking in the scattered one's own languages. God uses diversity to bear witness to the gospel. It's God's idea. Not just to judge us in our idolatry, but to give us a way in our own unique and nuanced ways to bear witness to who God is. Paul says in Romans 14, he's kind of leaning into this, that God is Lord of all peoples. God is those who who wave terrible towels or wave falcon's towels, right? I mean, God is the God of those who observe this day and those who observe a different day. God is the God of, of those who eat vegetables and those who don't eat vegetables. God is the God of all people. Paul's adamant about this. And he's leaning into this image, this idea that diversity is God's idea to bear witness that God's name's above every name. And so we cannot, Paul says, judge each other. We need each other, says Paul, because it's this very diversity that paints this beautiful picture and speaks this beautiful word about who God is in and for the world. I'll close with this. For our purposes in the long-range strategic plan, we, we get together and we say things like we value diversity. And, and I would ask, you know, when I ask people in the congregation, and we've heard from people, and they say, of course, we value diversity. 
But we realize that when we use this word, diversity, it means so many things to so many people. It has diverse definitions, diverse expectations, diverse outcomes. And so we were trying to think of a way to frame this value that says, hey, and pardon the, the image here, that our value of diversity sort of towers over what the mainstream has provided us, what the pragmatists have provided us, what the conservative critique has provided us with something different. An authentic diversity, an authentic diversity in that it is authentic to the realization that God creates diversity to put an end to, to idolatry, and God creates diversity to scatter God's mission in and for the world. Friends, this authentic diversity is a call, an invitation for us to live into this big idea that we need each other to bear witness to the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism that has saved us all. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world and all of God's people say, amen. One of the great gifts of, uh, of this hymnal is you get to break out all these old wonderful hymns uh, that were not included in our last iteration, our last hymnal. Um, I was... Uh, with my father-in-law, Jonathan Miller, Dr. Jonathan Miller, this morning at 8 o'clock, and he leaned over to me and said, I, I can't remember the last time I, I sang this, this hymn in, in a Presbyterian worship service. Uh, and I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but with the, in the new hymnal, we get to sing it as many times as, as we want. And I, I was thinking as we were finishing it, I would hear it sung when Katie and I were, were dating, and we'd go to Katie's... Um, grandmother's uh, retirement community, and she was a piano player. And I told Jens this, if Jens got sick, she could jump right on. She would have been incredible. And uh, she just died a few weeks ago, 93 years old. And we had a memorial service on Tuesday. And all of these things sort of converge. And you think about this hymn, and this hymn was the hymn that this retirement community would sing after every worship service that they would gather Sunday in and Sunday out. Blessed be the tie that binds. And for a community like that in the sunset years of life, many going through grief, many going through loneliness, what a wonderful, mindful gift that is to know that we're not alone and that we need each other. So our value is, is that we will never be like a tower over someone else. Only God is above. And our commitment is that we are going to be a church that is striving to be authentically diverse and treat one another like we're children of God and understand that this diversity, this diversity is a gift to scatter the good news throughout the world. May the author and perfecter of this good news, even Jesus the Christ, be our peace. A peace which surpasses all understanding may live inside of us this day and every day of our life. Amen.